For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're going to be looking at uh, the most important event in human history, the cross of Christ. And um, it's really without exaggeration to say that this is really the greatest event in all of human history. And it will stand as the greatest monument of God's love for us. The Bible tells us that we're going to be spending the rest of eternity examining what happened in those three or four hours. And uh, we'll be in great amazement of how much God has sacrificed for us through Christ. If you're new here tonight, what we're going to be studying stands as really the central message of Christianity. And uh, it's a little bit heavy, but uh, God had to pay a pretty heavy price in order to rescue us from our plight. Let's begin uh, by looking at some events earlier in the book of Luke. Starting in Luke 22, verse 42, we're told that as Jesus is praying to the Father in the final hours of his life, He prays, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. And he prayed even more fervently. And he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. And so Jesus endured the emotional turmoil of bearing the sins of the world. He knew that that was his central mission and that he was going to accomplish it within hours. And just the thought of having to bear the sins of the entire human race brought shudders through his body. Um, You know, most of us probably can relate to the feeling that you have, that intense burden or even grief that you feel whenever you've done something wrong. And we're told that Jesus, being sinless, innocent, who, you know, in his nature, sin and evil contradict everything in his nature, that he actually has an inherent aversion to evil, unlike us, that in the moments at the cross, he would actually take upon himself the sins of the entire human race. He says to the Father, uh, take this cup of suffering away from me. And um, we know what he's talking about. He's uh, referring to a passage in uh, Jeremiah 25, verse 15, which refers to these final days when God would actually cause His Holy One, His Anointed One, to actually drink the cup of His wrath. He says, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and I'm going to make all the nations whom I send you drink it. And so God, because of our moral wrongdoing, has collected wrath because whenever we do something against God and His nature, uh, He dictates that some sort of payment needs to be made. And so as a result, He's storing up this wrath that he, want, he was going to pour out onto the nations. But we're told that His Son, Jesus, came and actually bore that for all of us. In addition to that, we're told that He was in such agony that this, uh, He was sweating and that His sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Now, some people speculate that there's a medical condition wherein you can be under so much stress that actually blood will emanate from your pores. That might be true, but if you look at the language, Luke says that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. I think that he's using a simile here to kind of give us a picture of the kind of agony, the kind of anguish that he was feeling as he was looking forward to the cross. Well, we're told that uh, in the night... He was arrested and brought before Pilate. So when we skip forward to Luke chapter 23, Luke tells us what the trial was like before Pilate. 
We're told the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay taxes to the Roman government and by claiming that he's the Messiah, a king. Now, we know that Jesus explicitly told the religious leaders that they should give to Caesar what is Caesar's earlier in the book of Luke. And so they knew that they had to come up with some sort of trumped up charges in order to accuse Jesus and have him executed. Remember, the Sadducees, who were the ruling class of the Jews, felt threatened by Jesus because he was overthrowing all the uh, tables at the temple when he cleansed the temple. And so they felt like he was a threat to their revenue stream. And the Pharisees were threatened by him because all the people listened to him. And he also called them out as hypocrites for the way that they were living. And so they knew that the Romans wouldn't actually execute Jesus for blaspheming because that was regarding their own law. And so they had to come up with something different. Namely, that he was going around telling people that they shouldn't pay their taxes and that he claimed to be king, who the Romans viewed as, you know, that would have been uh, an act of uh, sedition and treason. So we're told in verse 3, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, in typical response, says, you've said it. Sort of an ambiguous statement. But essentially he's saying, it's as you say. Pilate turned to the leading priests in the crowd and said to him, I found nothing wrong with this man. And they became insistent, but he's causing riots by teaching wherever he goes all over Judea from Galilee to Jerusalem. Pilate asked, oh, so he's from Galilee? And when they said that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas had jurisdiction over Galilee, so he sent him there. And Herod was curious about Jesus because he had heard about all of these miraculous signs that he was performing throughout Judea. So he was questioning him for a few hours, hoping that Jesus would eventually perform a miracle. And when Jesus wouldn't respond. Eventually, he lost interest and even started joining in, in the jeering that his soldiers were uh, throwing at Jesus. And eventually, he sent him back to Pilate. Now, it's interesting because Luke points out later that Herod actually viewed Jesus as innocent. And so, he should have let Jesus go. And yet, he decided to deliver him back to Pilate. You know, one of the things that we argue throughout this book is that the book of Luke and Acts, the two-part series, represents a legal brief that Luke was presenting to the Roman government on behalf of Paul. So one of the things that he was trying to argue really throughout the gospel of Luke is that Jesus was an innocent man. And you'll see this because Pilate, although he was guilty in this matter, um, it seems like Luke isn't really going into a ton of detail about what he had done wrong. So when he was returned back to Pilate, Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders along with the people and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me accusing him of leading a revolt. I've examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Here it came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty, so I'll just have him flogged and then we'll release him. Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas. Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. And Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus. It was customary on the Passover for the Roman governor to release one prisoner. And so that's the reason why the crowds were yelling for Barabbas' release and Jesus' execution. Well, we're told that this happens a number of times. And even though Pilate says, I, what, why do you want to kill this guy if I see him, that he's done nothing wrong? The crowd got even louder. 
and even more riotous and, and we're yelling, crucify him. And so we're told in verse 24 that Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. So Luke gives us sort of a shortened version of Pilate's verdict. But we know from the other Gospels that Pilate took a hand, uh, really had a lot of responsibility in Jesus' death. But it wouldn't make sense in Luke's legal brief to go on about how this Roman official had messed up. Well, after sentencing Jesus to death, Pilate gave the order to flog Jesus. Now, for those of you who aren't very familiar with this process of flogging, it was a brutal act. What they would do is they would take what's called the flagellum, which the Romans, uh, they would fashion a uh, leather whip that had nine um, tails to it. And attached to each braided end were either pieces of iron or sharp pieces of sheep bone. And what would happen is as two executioners would, would strip the victim naked and tie him to a post, the executioners would um, alternate whipping the victim on their back, their buttocks, and their thighs. In 1986, the Journal of American Medical Association, based on archaeological evidence, reconstructed the kind of trauma that this and also crucifixion would cause to its victims. They say, as the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victims back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock, and the extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. In documented cases, many victims would actually die shortly after the flogging. And yet, compared to what the victim would experience on the cross, this probably was uh, a blessing in disguise because of the slow torture that came about through the cross. Well, we're told in verse 32 and 33, two others, both criminals, were let out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one at his right and one at his left. Now, it's not clear where this place was. In other Gospels, this is actually called Golgotha. But it's likely that this skull was located outside of the city and alongside a major, major highway leading into Jerusalem and leading out. And the Romans purposely did this because they wanted to have onlookers pass by these blood street corpses with a, um, a sign indicating the kind of crime they committed as a way to deter people from even thinking about rebelling against Rome. And so these victims were out on display for all people to see. Now, you know, for those of us who have seen The uh, Passion of the Christ, which was released a number of years ago, I think in 2004, that movie, I think, depicted the kind of the gory nature of crucifixion. But for those of you who have never seen that movie, I wanted to maybe discuss briefly some of the physical agony Jesus faced at the cross. First of all, um, the cross was something that was so hideous, so grotesque, that we're told uh, by the statesman and speechwriter Cicero let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. It was considered rude to even discuss crucifixion in normal conversation because it was so gruesome. If you notice, when you read the Gospels, 
most of the time, the Gospels don't go into any sort of detail about the cross, which is sort of puzzling. I think there might be a number of reasons for this. First of all, I think the Gospel writers were aiming to try to highlight the spiritual torment that Jesus endured. But also, it may be that most of the people reading the Gospels had actually seen uh, the crucifixion victims as they were traveling. And so there was no need to elaborate on the kind of suffering that they experienced. Uh, we know that the crucifixion victims were often stripped naked. You know, in most of the artist renditions that we see, there's usually a tiny loincloth covering the, you know, Jesus. But typically what they would do is they would strip the victim completely naked, which, you know, in our culture today, it's not that big of a deal, nudity. But you have to put yourself in the context of ancient Judaism. People were more modest back then. And so to strip somebody naked and hang them on a cross was humiliating. It was the ultimate form of humiliation that you could do to a, a Jewish man. Secondly, victims were, were, uh, had to carry their own cross. Unlike what you see in some movies where the victim... Uh, was actually carrying an entire cross or Jesus was shown carrying a, a cross with the, uh, the long piece and the short piece. In actuality, they would, actu they would have the victim carry what's called the patabellum, which was just the cross piece. They would usually tie the victim's arms to that piece and this piece weighed about 75 to 125 pounds. And you can imagine how exhausting and painful that must have been after all of the blood loss they experienced through their flogging. In fact, we're told in verse 26 that as they led Jesus away, a man named Simon who was from Cyrene happened to be coming from the countryside and the soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus because Jesus was incapable of carrying his own cross. Not to mention the fact that this was a way of signaling not only to the onlookers but also to the victim that you are a dead man walking and that you are carrying the very instrument of your own death. Also, we're told that the average time of death was anywhere between three to four hours and three to four days based on documented sources. Seneca says this, can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb or letting out his life drop by drop rather than expiring once and for all? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly wounds on shoulders and chest, and drawing the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony? He would have many excuses for dying even before mounting the cross." The way that the cross tortured its victims was by prolonging the victim's life. We know that the cause of death for most crucifixion victims was asphyxiation or heart failure. What they would do is uh, they would take a railroad spike and they would drive it through uh, the median nerve in the wrist. Um, and this would cause, you know, pain to shoot through the body of the victim. And in some cases, they would actually pierce the victim through the hand and then tie both arms to the cross. And then what they would do is they would take both feet and put them on top of each other and drive another spike through the metatarsals. And so, essentially, when the victim was outstretched, they had difficulty breathing. And so in order to breathe, they would either have to pull down on the spikes in order to draw a breath or push up on their feet in order to try to expand the lungs. And so, as you can imagine, each breath was excruciatingly painful. Not to mention the fact that their back was completely, um, you know, marred. And so they would have to rub their back against this rough wooden cross. Again, the Journal of American Medical Association says that the driven nail would crush or sever the rather large sensory mo motor median nerve. The stimulated nerve would produce excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms. And so, 
um, sometimes what they would do is they would actually put a little seat right below the, the uh, where, uh, uh, right below the, the, the victim's butt so that they could sit down and rest in order to prolong their death. Well, <clears throat> as Jesus was suffering this excruciating pain, uh, onlookers look, look, saw him say something, utter something. And you might be wondering, what is he saying? You know, is he yelling curses at the Roman guards who are taunting him, who are torturing him? Is he um, crying out that he's innocent? Well, Luke tells us that he was praying. Was he praying for vindication? Was he praying that God would curse the very people who are torturing him? No, Luke tells us that Jesus was actually praying for the very people who were crucifying him. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And at that, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. You know, I can't imagine doing this. I mean, if somebody was, you know, unjustly persecuting you, to forgive them would be very difficult, but to, to forgive the very torturers who are killing you would just be very difficult to even imagine. You know, it's also significant to note when he prayed this prayer. It wasn't after the fact when he was raised from the dead. It was as the torturers were driving the spikes into his arms and as they were jeering at him, spitting at him, torturing him. You know, this word here said, it's in the imperfect, which the way that you could translate this would be that Jesus kept on saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's as they were doing these things that he prayed this prayer. You know, one of the things that's unique about Jesus is that every prayer he ever prayed, God answered. John 11 tells us that uh, Jesus said to the Father, I know that when I pray to you, you hear me. And not even moments after his death, we know that God actually answered this prayer. That as he was about to die, darkness enveloped the land and there was an earthquake that shook the land. And at that moment, uh, we're told that um, the Roman guard uh, said, surely this man must be the Son of God. Also, it's interesting that Jesus' prayer was completely different than what Jewish criminals prayed before their execution. You know, if a Jewish criminal didn't know what to pray, the rabbis gave a suggested prayer in order to atone for their sins. In the Mishnah, we're told that if he, that is the criminal, doesn't know how to confess his sins, he should be told to say, may my death be the expiation for all of my sins. Well, that would have been impossible for Jesus because he was completely innocent. All he could pray was, let my death forgive them for what they've done. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Uh, not moments after, probably uh, 50 days later, uh, Jesus, after he uh, prayed this prayer, Peter got up among uh, many of the men in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost, and uh, he started sharing the message of Christ to all the people there. And we're told that the very people who were there at Jesus' crucifixion the crowds were the very people that Peter was actually sharing the message of Christ with. He even calls them out because they weren't just observers. Many of them were actually complicit in it. He says, you crucified the Son of God. And we're told that over 5,000 people came to know Christ at that very moment. And so Jesus' prayer was answered even shortly after that. But Jesus wasn't just praying for the people who would immediately receive him as their Savior. He was also praying for people 
you know, many thousands of years later. This is what Spurgeon says, the great English uh, preacher. He says, it was not a prayer for enemies who had done him uh, an, an ill deed years before, but for those who were there and then murdering him. Not in cold blood did the Savior pray after he had forgotten the injury and the more easily forgive it, but while the first red drops of blood were spurting on the hands which drove the nails, while yet the hammer was stained with crimson gore, his blessed mouth poured out the warm, fresh prayer, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I say not that the prayer was confined to this immediate executioner. I believe that it was a far-reaching prayer. You know, Jesus prayed that prayer for every person that he died for. For every person's sin he paid for. You know, when God in Isaiah 53 says that he took the iniquity of us all and put it upon him, that's God's way of saying, you are guilty of murdering my son. That I am guilty of murdering his son. That we all took a hand in that. When those iron spikes were being driven through Jesus' tender nerves, when the hammer was jarring him in his entire body, Jesus was paying for our sins. Well, we're told that the crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. And they called out to him. He said, if you're the king of the Jews, why don't you save yourself? And so in addition to the physical agony that he experienced, as well as the emotional, he also had to endure psychologically as the soldiers and onlookers mocked him. We're told earlier in other gospel accounts that soldiers actually fashioned a crown of thorns and jammed it onto his head, that they were plucking uh, his beard out and spitting in his face, mocking him for being the so-called king of the Jews. Well, it's interesting that they say he saved others. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. You know, ironically, at that moment, he could have stopped all of this from happening. Early in the Garden of Gethsemane, as the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, we're told that Peter pulls out a sword and actually lops off the high priest's servant's ear. And Jesus stops him and he says, Don't you know? That at any moment I could call a legion of angels to come and rescue me? You know, it's tough to have to endure suffering when you feel powerless to do anything about it. But it must be even more painful to sit there and endure suffering when you know you can get out of it at any time. And yet Jesus did that voluntarily. You know, it's interesting that he, they say he saved others, let him save himself. And yet, in order to save others, he could not save himself. The Bible teaches that this was Jesus' central mission, to come here and to die, to allow himself to be killed in order to save us. Well, we're told in verse 38 that a sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. Um... You know, this sign was uh, called the titulus, which what they would do is whenever a criminal um, was in prison, they would take usually a piece of wood or some parchment and they would list the crime of this person and they would hang it right by their prison cell. Or if this person had to serve in the galley, they would, they would nail it right next to where they were sitting as they were rowing. And once the prisoner or the criminal served their sentence, the magistrate or the judge would come and write paid in full on there. And that way, if somebody questioned them because they recognized them as a criminal, this person could produce evidence that they had served their, their crime, their sentence. And Jesus had one of these, which said, this is the king of the Jews. For crucifixion victims, what they would do is they would actually hang the sign around their neck 
as they were walking their cross to their place of final execution. And then once they were nailed to the cross, they would take the titulus and nail it to the cross. Now Paul captures this in Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. And he says, He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken that out of the way, nailing it to the cross. The Bible says that each and every one of us has a titulus or a certificate of debt listing all of the things that we've ever done wrong. And it's not only the things that we've done wrong, but also the things that we've failed to do, like honor and respect God, or when we've failed to love people. Every evil thought, every hateful thought, all of that is recorded on our, our certificate of debt. Now, some of you might be feeling like, man, that kind of makes me feel a little uncomfortable. You know, you might be looking over at other people that you think, well, at least I'm not like this person. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a rapist like this guy over here. Well, yeah, I mean, your certificate of debt might be shorter than this other person's, but that doesn't change the fact that you've got a list too. And, you know, one of the things that we have to come to terms with is that God is perfectly moral and we are morally imperfect. And God says that we cannot come into his presence because of that. And that God, because he is God, is not only morally just, he also is the final arbiter of justice on earth. That means that he is responsible to judge all of the moral wrongdoing in the earth. You know, sometimes when we are sitting down at dinner, you know, and you turn on the news, you have scenes of starvation, war, killing, hatred, racism streaming through uh, into your living room. Sometimes, you know, it just kind of grosses you out. You want to just turn it off. And yet, you know, God doesn't have that luxury. He can't just turn it off. As an omniscient being, you have to see all of it. You know, imagine if you walked into a room that had like a billion monitors recording all of the evil, all of the atrocities, all of the, the racist thoughts, all of the hatred, all of the abuse in the world, and you had no choice but to look at it. You had to stare at those screens. That's what it was like for God to have to stare at all of that. And he has to do something about it. Because if he didn't do anything about it, then what kind of God would he be? He certainly wouldn't be a good God. He certainly wouldn't be a God that we could trust. Well, ironically, the sign that was fastened was, this is the king of the Jews. Now, the Jewish leaders were pretty upset that Pilate wrote this on Jesus is titulous because it's, it's actually not an accusation of any sort of crime. And yet, Pilate, as sort of the last word to the Jews who put pressure on him to crucify Jesus, said, I've written what I've written. And ironically, the people crucified Jesus for exactly that, for being their king. According to the Bible, Jesus is our rightful king. And yet, as the human race, as people who resist God, we don't want him to assert his authority into our lives. And that's the exact reason why the Jewish leaders decided to crucify Jesus. Well, we're told in verse uh, 44 and 45, by this time it was about noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock and the light from the sun was gone. And uh, at this point, uh, really, Jesus was about to experience the most painful type of suffering of all. Throughout the process of crucifixion, Jesus experienced spiritual torment. You know, in Matthew 27, verse 46, we're told 
that Jesus about the ninth hour cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, Jesus wasn't confused about why he was on the cross. He was actually quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. You know, in the ancient Jewish times, they didn't have chapter and verse numbers, and so they would often uh, cite the first line of a passage in order to indicate it, cite it. And so when Jesus cried this out, he was essentially telling the people who were watching, what you're seeing right now is actually a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 1. And uh, for those of you who might be guests here, who might be skeptical about the Bible, one of the things that God has furnished us is evidence through the Old Testament. He's laid out hundreds of Old Testament biblical prophecies in order to persuade us, to give us evidence that He exists, that He's real. Well, also, Jesus was describing the agony of separation that He experienced from the Father. You know, it's really veiled in mystery what all happened at the cross. And I think we're going to be spending the rest of eternity examining this event. But up to this point, the Father and the Son had experienced incredible unity and love. They had never been separated. But apparently at this moment, the Father and the Son both agreed in advance that the Father would turn His back on the Son and experience the separation that we deserve to experience eternally. Also, Jesus was silently bearing the punishment of the entire human race. In that moment, Jesus was absorbing God's wrath And the people standing there couldn't see it. It was something, a transaction that was taking place between him and the Father. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul elaborates what was happening, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm not sure what that all entails, but Jesus, who was sinless, became sin so that we might become righteous. Also, we're told in Galatians 3.13, Paul says that Jesus bore the curse of the law for us. For as Scripture says, cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. It's interesting. Uh, it's, it's almost word for word what Seneca describes in his, um, his picture that he gives of the cross. He describes it as this accursed tree. And so in that moment, Jesus was paying for our sins. You know, Jesus was truly God-forsaken so we wouldn't have to be. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He truly allowed God to forsake him so that we could have an opportunity to forge a relationship with him. But we're told suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Now, for those of you who might be unfamiliar with the tabernacle or the temple and its layout, there was uh, a big room called the holy place and then there was the inner room called the most holy place. And nobody could enter that room except for the high priest once a year on this special day called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, he would come before the entire congregation of Israel and he would confess the sins of the people symbolically on a goat. And then he would take that goat and he would slaughter it and take some of the blood and sacrifice it in the inner room, the Holy of Holies. Now, when you walked into the holy place, you would notice that there was a thick veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And we're told that at that moment, as Jesus was about to expire, that the temple curtain ripped from the bottom to the top, indicating the new access we could have through Christ's death. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, verse 19 and 20, he says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, 
We can boldly enter into heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Up to that point, God said, you cannot come into my presence because you are morally corrupt. But because of what Christ has done, he's opened up the way for us to come to him anytime. We are incredibly privileged because of what Christ has done. Well, in verse 46, then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. In John's account, he adds another saying that Jesus uttered right before he, he expired on the cross. In John 19, verse 30, when Jesus had tasted it, that is, the, the, the wine, right before he died, he said, it is finished. And in Greek, this is the word tetelestai. That happens to be the same word the magistrate would actually write across the titulus whenever a criminal served their sentence. And so Jesus calls out, it is finished, to indicate that he had paid for the wrath of the entire human race. At that moment, Jesus took the wrath that God had been storing up for all of the evil, all of the injustice, all of the hatred, all of the lack of love, all of the rebellion, and poured it out on Jesus. Now, it's kind of hard, I think, to uh, try to depict this in words. So uh, my wife and I actually put together a video a few years ago trying to capture... um, you know, the countless evil that uh, the human race uh, deserves to pay for at the cross. Are you hungry? see those images, uh, it just makes your stomach turn. And that's, that must be what God feels when he sees evil to a greater degree. And uh, at that moment, as he was thinking of all of the evil, all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the hatred, in that moment, he poured it out onto his son. And at that moment, Jesus cried out, It's finished! Indicating that he paid for it all. Well, at this, he breathed his last words. Now, we skipped over a section where Jesus actually had an interaction with a few individuals while he was on the cross. And I want to sort of end our time there. Sometime earlier, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Can you imagine? Here, another person suffering and having to pull up on these spikes in order to gain just the breath to speak hurls an insult at Jesus. We're told that the other criminal on his left also was scoffing at Jesus, but at one point his mind had changed. And we're told the other criminal protested. He says, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? 
We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's interesting that this man's request, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus doesn't even respond to that. He gives him something way better. He says, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, I think a couple things can be noted here. First of all, Jesus rescued the thief even though he was incapable of doing any good works. You know, some of us believe that the way to gain entrance into heaven is to do good things. And yet this man had no opportunity to do that. And yet Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Some of us feel like, you know, I've done so many bad things in my life, I'm just not sure that God could ever forgive me for any of those things. And yet this man was a thief and a murderer. And yet Jesus promised him that he would be with him in all of eternity. Secondly, it's interesting that this man was Jesus' last companion on earth and his first companion at the gates of paradise. You know, if you look at Jesus' life, he spent most of his time with the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the immoral people, the drunkards. And he spent really his entire ministry from day one all the way until his last moment with thieves and sinners. And it's interesting that Jesus says, today I assure you uh, that you will be with me in paradise. You know, Jesus, we're told, descended for a few hours. And it's not clear where he went. But probably as the thief expired a few hours after Jesus, Jesus met him as they were walking toward the gates of paradise. And you can imagine the angels who are, you know, sentries watching guard over the gates of heaven. As they're looking on, they see Jesus walking in another individual. They're probably thinking to themselves, who is it? Is it, is it a martyr? Is it Abraham? Is it David? And look who comes up. This thief on the cross one of the worst criminals the, the earth could ever regurgitate into heaven. And yet, ironically, he was sort of the first installment of many like him. People who have done lots of wrong things in their life. People who have rebelled against God. Jesus promises that if we place our faith in him, that we could be with him in paradise. I think it's also interesting that uh, Jesus during his ministry said, those who are first will be last in the kingdom of God. And those who are last will be first. I guess he meant that literally as this guy showed up to the gates of heaven. Let's draw a few conclusions. I think the first thing is that Jesus paid the ultimate price for our sins on the cross. That's the central message of the cross it's one that is uh, gut-wrenching. It's one that is uh, painful to hear. And yet, it's also an incredible sacrifice that God has paid on our behalf. You know, the Bible says that if you turn to Him in faith, you can actually forge a relationship with Him and that he will forgive you through what Christ has done. And so the question I have for those of you who don't know God in a personal way is, have you asked God to pay for your certificate of debt? He's eager to do that. He's paid the price for it. And the question is, are you going to allow him to nail that to the cross? For those of us who have received Christ at one time in our lives, have you retained and grown in your appreciation of the cross or have you begun to take it for granted? You know, it's not like when you become a Christian, you sort of move on to, to, to deeper things where you sort of move on from the cross. 
really as you grow in your faith, you understand to a greater degree how much God has sacrificed for you. And there's a growing sense of awe and wonder about what he's done for you. You know, we're so inundated with the message of the cross that sometimes we lose sight of how important it is and what kind of initial reaction we might have to it. I remember um, just, you know, a couple weeks ago I was reading this uh, thing called the Action Bible to my son. It's this like graphic novel style Bible. And uh, I can barely get my son to sit through even two pages of this. And um, I remember getting to the point where uh, we were reading through the last few hours of Jesus' life where Judas betrays him and Peter denies him. And I started reading through it and really trying to, you know, make it exciting for him. And he was just riveted to the pages until we got to the cross. And he, um, you know, listened. Without interrupting, without moving, he was just fixated on the story. And um, when I finished with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, I closed the Bible. I said, what did you think about that? He said, Daddy, that's scary. And um, I thought that was a pretty interesting observation. It is a scary thing. It's something that inspires fear. And yet, it's truly the greatest redemptive act God has ever performed for us. When you understand what Jesus did on the cross, it really brings about a sense of gratitude and joy that God would endure this for us. And so I would challenge you to think about that and learn to appreciate it as you grow in your faith of him. Yeah, Lord, uh, words really can't capture just the enormity of this event and uh, what it's going to mean to us for eternity future. And um, I pray, God, that um, as we grow in our faith, that we can uh, learn to appreciate this more. Pray that um, as uh, we mature, that you would, um, that this would move us every time we hear it, because we know that this is. Um, you know, the uh, event that changed our lives. And um, I pray especially for those of us, Lord, who uh, may uh, be for the first time understanding the meaning of the cross, that if uh, they sense in your heart, in their heart, that uh, you are calling on them to receive your forgiveness, that they would just turn to you in faith and trust themselves to what you've done for them. And we thank you for anyone who did that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.